Well, he was a lawyer for me for uh, one of many. I, you know, they, they always say the lawyer, and then they like to add the fixer. Well, I don't know if there's a fixer. Uh, I don't know where that term came from, but he's been a lawyer for me. Didn't do big deals, did small deals. Uh, not somebody that was with me that much. You know, they make it sound like I didn't live with without him. I understood Michael Cohen very well. Uh, he, uh, what turned out, he wasn't a very good lawyer, frankly. That's how President Trump described his relationship with Michael Cohen in an interview with Fox and Friends on Thursday. But how much more do we know about the president's relationship with the man who implicated him in a plea deal? A few days after Trump's former lawyer and longtime friend pleaded guilty to eight counts of financial crimes, we're digging into what we've learned from details made public since Cohen's plea. What does the web of people and organizations surrounding these financial crimes look like? And how do they relate to the president? In his plea, Cohen admitted to campaign finance violations made at the direction of Trump, a stark turn on Trump after many public pledges of loyalty. So given his willingness to implicate Trump in his plea, what else might Michael Cohen be willing to share? What else does he know? And when might he reveal it? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Today's episode, at the end of a very busy news week, takes a deeper look at the man who implicated a sitting president. It takes a look at his relationship with Trump's foundation and businesses and tells a story of what it all might mean for the man in the Oval Office. That story starts about a decade ago. Cohen went to work for the Trump Organization as a lawyer in about 2007 and worked there very closely with Donald Trump and his family, his children who worked for the company uh, for about 10 years, which covers the period of the presidential campaign. He left the Trump Organization in January of 2017 when Donald Trump took office and at that point kind of struck out on his own, but continued to style himself a personal attorney to Donald Trump. Rosalind Helderman is a political enterprise reporter here at The Washington Post. She's been covering all the legal developments of the Mueller probe and related investigations. She filled me in on how Michael Cohen earned his reputation as Trump's fixer. He sort of prided himself, talked very publicly about how he saw his role as being sort of a bulldog for the president, then, you know, for Donald Trump, kind of as a guy who solved his problems. He was a well-known figure to New York media who did a lot of reporting on Trump. Uh, when people were doing stories that Trump was unlikely to like, they would often get a phone call from Michael Cohen, a very aggressive phone call. He talked about himself as this kind of combative boxer on behalf of Donald Trump and his family. Now, Michael Cohen wasn't just a lawyer for Donald Trump. He also had real estate investments and was involved in the taxicab business. His wife's parents uh, had been owners of taxicab medallions, which are the legal ownership that allows you to operate a taxicab in New York City. And once he met her and married her in the 1990s, uh, he bought some medallions from her parents and kind of got into the taxi business. But he uh, kept ownership of these medallions, which at one point were extraordinarily valuable. Uh, they've been sinking in value, which is important to Cohen's financial picture. Uh, they've been sinking in recent uh, in value in recent years due to the rise of Uber and other ride-sharing apps. Federal prosecutors have now collected millions of documents that essentially detail some of Michael Cohen's financial dealings, including some stuff related to this medallion business. 
what do those documents show about Michael Cohen's financial dealings? So in his plea deal, uh, Michael Cohen pled guilty to a series of charges, but most of the charges he pled guilty to had to do with his own financial health, and they fell into sort of two sets. Uh, so basically, it's tax evasion. He failed to pay taxes on all of his income. Some of the income he failed to report had to do with quite complicated loans that he was making to other people in the taxi business, and then he would collect interest on that and not report that as income. There were also some random things like he sold a piece of property in Florida. He also sold a luxury Birkin bag. How Michael Cohen got the Birkin bag to begin with is not told to us. It's an intriguing piece of the uh, of the court document. But uh, <laughs> he sold these things. He made a profit and he didn't pay taxes on them. So that's one piece of it, tax evasion. And then the other piece is false statements to banks while he got loans. You can kind of see uh, them tracking Cohen being under increasing financial pressure. He was taking out these loans, kind of large and larger loans, and then even using the taxicab medallions as collateral for the loans, and then even taking out some loans and using that money to pay off the previous loans. And so it looked like he was quite in debt uh, at the time of his plea deal. Leading up to the plea deal, we have that, those financial circumstances, but we also have an evolving relationship between Trump and Cohen in the lead up to that. Can you elaborate on how Cohen and Trump's relationship might have changed prior to this plea deal? Yeah, I mean, Cohen quite famously vowed that he would never turn on Donald Trump. He even said that he would, you know, take a bullet for Trump. But things changed over time. Uh, One thing that changed is that Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric about Cohen was not to Cohen's liking. He started talking about how Cohen had just done a little legal work for him and sort of distancing himself from Michael Cohen. And Michael Cohen is, is someone people who know him have told us really, really craved the approval of Donald Trump. Very much respected and admired him, kind of wanted to be a Trump-like figure. And so he was really deeply hurt by being cut off from the president. He had already been anxious and hurt by the fact that Trump did not bring him into the White House, didn't give him a government job. And then to be distanced in that way really hurt him. Um, There's also some reporting that he was bothered by some of the things that happened in the Trump administration, bothered by Charlottesville, bothered uh, more recently by the president's interactions with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. And so you have this kind of changing outlook for Cohen on Trump and his character at the same time as you have just this enormous pressure being brought to bear on him by federal prosecutors who eventually it appeared kind of threatened to charge him with felonies that if he was convicted on them could have resulted in, you know, a decade or more in prison. So based on all of these things, it seems reasonable that he would go for a plea deal. Yes. uh, When the federal government comes after you and comes after you hard, a plea deal becomes attractive to a lot of people. Uh, We also know just from the documents that were filed that his wife actually co-signed a number of the key documents that he has now agreed included criminal information. They jointly filed their taxes in each of the years that he now agrees he was under-reporting his income. She also filed some of the bank loans. And so he may well have felt as though his wife was facing criminal liability. And as often happens in cases like this, the government may have agreed to accept his plea deal in lieu of charging her as well. 
Now, Lanny Davis, who's Cohen's attorney and spokesman, has suggested that Cohen is willing to be a witness against Trump and other investigations. Do the terms of this particular plea deal obligate Cohen to do that? They don't. And it's one of the things that's a little bit puzzling. The legal experts have kind of been mulling it and offering a lot of thoughts on it. Oftentimes, what you'll see in a plea deal is a sort of an explicit requirement that a person uh, cooperate in future criminal proceedings, as well as essentially a promise from the government, sort of a two-way street. And we don't see that in this agreement. Now, it doesn't mean that he can't cooperate from here. It doesn't mean that ultimately he won't be credited in some way with that cooperation at sentencing. Uh, But it is unusual for a person who apparently, according to his lawyer, is so eager to cooperate and, according to his lawyer, supposedly has useful information to share in ongoing investigations, that he wouldn't have arranged to get a deal that actually explicitly gave him credit for that information. And so we're going to have to see over time why it is that that happened and whether it is that he actually has uh, information that can genuinely help other investigations or not. So one big other investigation is, of course, that of Robert Mueller. Do we have reason to believe that Cohen might cooperate with Mueller? Well, Lanny Davis is certainly indicating that he will cooperate. He is now saying that he believes that Michael Cohen has information that Mueller would find useful, would find interesting. Again, this is a bit of a puzzle at the moment because all the other sort of tea leaves that we can discern about the Mueller probe, which suggests that Robert Mueller and his team do not believe Michael Cohen to be a key witness and have not shown a lot of interest in him. Lanny Davis has been kind of out there for a little while now suggesting Cohen would cooperate. And as far as we can tell, there has not been uh, contact between Cohen and Mueller so far. Uh, We also know that Mueller's team agreed to hand this case off to the Southern District of New York, to the prosecutors in Manhattan, because apparently he did not believe this case sort of fell within the core mandate of what he is working on, which is the question of whether the Trump campaign coordinated with Russia before the, uh, the election. So it's a little hard to know. You would certainly believe that Mueller's office will be calling and that Michael Cohen will be sitting down for an interview because he's been raising that red flag and waving it so vigorously to say, I've got information, come ask me about it. It's hard to believe they would not choose to ask him about it. But whether or not that information is actually something that Mueller needs or wants, we'll have to see over time. Let's pivot to talk a little bit about Trump's foundation and Trump's organization. What role has Cohen played, if any, specifically in Trump's foundation and his charity? So the Trump Foundation, Cohen was not on the board of the foundation. He played no formal role in it. He was involved with the solicitation of one donation from a Ukrainian businessman who made a donation to the foundation in exchange for Donald Trump delivering a speech. But we don't know of any particular information that he would have to share about Trump's private charity. Uh, There are these ongoing investigations of Trump's private foundation. There's been a civil lawsuit filed by the New York Attorney General's office, and uh, other state authorities in New York are investigating whether that should be a criminal matter. And so you saw this kind of extraordinary spectacle this week where Lanny Davis went on television and essentially said, you should call Michael. He would be happy to help uh, New York officials in their investigation into the Trump Foundation. 
And the very next day, the New York Department of Taxation issued a subpoena to Cohen. Now, generally, the way that would be handled is that Cohen's attorneys would call and they would set up some kind of interview. But instead, what we understand happened was that Cohen himself picked up the phone and said, called the department and said, I'm here. What do you what do you need? So I think we can just sort of see that as an indication of how eager Cohen is to demonstrate publicly that he's willing to spill everything he knows to whoever asks. And presumably beyond the foundation, he knows things about the Trump organization. Did he ever have a formal role in the Trump organization? Yeah, he was a senior vice president at the Trump organization. During the years when he was an attorney for private citizen Donald Trump, he was formerly employed by the Trump organization. So he presumably knows quite a bit about the organization's finances, about some of its deals. Uh, We, of course, do know, and this might be more in Mr. Mueller's camp, but we do know that he was involved, for instance, in negotiations over the possibility of building a Trump Tower in Moscow. Those conversations were ongoing during the presidential campaign. The other thing he would know about involving Trump's business is exactly how everything unfolded with the reimbursements that Cohen got from the Trump organization for the money he paid to Stormy Daniels. How was the Trump Organization specifically involved in reimbursing that payment that eventually was to Stormy Daniels? Yeah, so here's what we know, and we knew some of this before, and we've learned more from the court documents this week about how those payments happened. Michael Cohen had taken out a loan from his bank in the spring of 2016. He got that loan fraudulently, so that's a separate criminal charge that he's now pled guilty to. But he had some money sitting around, and uh, he negotiated with Stormy Daniels and ultimately paid her just a few days before the election, $130,000. But then he sought reimbursement. He didn't want to be on the hook for that money. And so what we've learned in the court documents is he actually worked with some executives at the Trump organization. He went to them for this reimbursement, and there was an agreement made that they would pay him quite a bit more than the $130,000 he owned he owed for Stormy. They would uh, add $50,000 for some mysterious tech services that he apparently bought for the campaign. Then they would gross up, as they said, the figure to, I think it was uh, $360,000, $360, for tax reasons. And then just, you know, why not? They would give him a $60,000 bonus. So the total figure is $420,000. And they agreed that they would pay it in $35,000 a month installments. And there was an agreement by the Trump executives to write him these checks and to say that it was a retainer fee for legal services for those months. Now, Michael Cohen was not doing any legal services for the Trump organization in those months of 2017. Those were essentially sham invoices. And so it is possible, we don't know, but it is possible that prosecutors could look at whether there was something fraudulent involving those invoices and whether sort of approving them and being involved with that kind of paperwork lie puts the executives on on the hook for being a part of this whole illegal scheme to pay Stormy Daniels. So those payments essentially put the Trump organization at legal risk? Potentially. Uh, we don't know. The payment itself was illegal because Michael Cohen has now agreed it was intended to influence the election. And so essentially, it was a campaign contribution. There are campaign finance limits. You can't give a campaign contribution of $130,000. It's far more than the legal limit. And so whether the government would really attempt to pursue a case around the idea that those executives were kind of in on that scheme, it might be a hard case. That's what experts say. And so it's unclear whether that's something they would really pursue. But it's certainly a possibility from the from the court documents that were filed this week. 
there's another person involved in all of this, and that is David Pecker of AMI, the company that owns the National Enquirer. The Wall Street Journal has reported that he was granted immunity by prosecutors in this case, and that story is still developing. But who is this man? Yeah, so he's a tabloid uh, tabloid mogul, if you will, a longtime friend of Donald Trump and also of Michael Cohen. And there's been sort of ongoing reporting over months and months now from the media about the role that the National Enquirer played in forming the Trump campaign of uh, potentially negative stories that could come out about Donald Trump and then finding ways to kill those stories and prevent the American public from learning about them. And what we've learned from Michael Cohen's plea deal is that these folks entered into a very explicit agreement. At least that's what the government is alleging and Michael Cohen is agreeing happened. August 2015, two months after Donald Trump enters the race, these folks start talking. David Pecker of AMI, also the National Enquirer's editor-in-chief, Dylan Howard, Michael Cohen, and what's written in the documents as one or more campaign officials. So we don't yet know who that is. Is that Donald Trump? Is that other people on the campaign? We don't know. But they start talking in August 2015, and they actually come up with this, the government says, as a formal sort of agreement that this is how this is going to work. AMI is going to be on the hunt for stories that could be damaging to Donald Trump. They're going to kind of work as a research arm of the campaign. And when they encounter them, they will let Michael Cohen know so that they can all kind of work together to squelch these stories. And then the government says, you can see how this kind of unfolded in action in the case of Karen McGill. Dougal, the Playboy model who had an affair, says that she had an affair with Donald Trump. Right. And so can you just walk us through the payments that were made to Karen McDougal? Yeah. So what we always knew had happened was that in August of 2016, I believe, AMI buys the life rights of Karen McDougal. They work out a, a deal with her in which they're going to pay her. And I think they agreed to like publish some columns that she was going to write. But they sort of bought her story to any affair she might have had with any married man. And then they didn't write that story. So we kind of knew that AMI had executed what's known in the tabloid business as a catch and kill. They got the story. They prevented her from telling it to anyone else. And then they didn't publish it. What we now know is from the very start, from the start of their conversations with Karen McDougal, Michael Cohen had agreed to reimburse AMI for that. He was going to buy the story from them to make double, triple sure it never came out and hurt Donald Trump. The reason the government now says that this is illegal is corporations can't make campaign contributions. So they're saying that was a campaign contribution. It was made with the purpose of affecting the election. And it's illegal because it's done by a corporation. And Michael Cohen was involved with coordinating it and making sure it happened. So all of this paints a picture of Michael Cohen, a man who once said he would take a bullet for Donald Trump who's ultimately flipped here. Do we expect to see Cohen reveal more information about his time spent closely with Trump in the coming weeks? I definitely think we're going to see more from him. Whether the information that he has is embarrassing or whether it actually could provide evidence of a crime, I think is the part that we're going to have to kind of wait and see. But I would definitely imagine that he'll be talking more, certainly to investigators, eventually to the public. All right, Roz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? If you liked this, share it with at least one person. And then follow me, Allison Michaels, on Twitter at Allison Mikes. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. 